Hi, and welcome to today's virtual event. I'm Talib Jabbar, Associate Editor at Zocalo Public Square. Here at Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free, and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at zocalopublicsquare.org, on YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. And if you enjoy the conversation, please like it, follow us, and subscribe. We're about to hear from Ali Narani, President and CEO of the National Immigration Forum and a fellow at ASU's Social Transformation Lab. He joins us today drawing on his extensive work to discuss how immigration might unite rather than divide Americans. I'm also happy to introduce Miriam Jordan, National Correspondent for the New York Times, who will be in conversation with Ali today. Over to you, Miriam. Speak with Ali Narani today. Ali is the president and CEO of the National Immigration Forum, a nonpartisan advocacy organization that promotes the value of immigrants and immigration. And he's a fellow at the Arizona State University Social Transformation Lab. Ali's latest book is Crossing Borders, The Reconciliation of a Nation of Immigrants, which will be out next week. It looks at the politics and the policies of immigration and strategies for reducing the fear and hatred that many seem to feel about immigrants or against immigrants. Thank you for joining me, Ali. Hey, uh, thank you so much, Miriam. It's special to be here with Ali, who I've known for maybe more, I think more than 15 years, and basically since I started my career, um, on, or at least started on this immigration beat after living overseas for many years. Um, in that time, there have been positive developments on the immigration front, but also some downright sad, tragic um, developments. So given polling that shows widespread support for both Afghan evacuees and Ukrainian refugees in the United States, where does that leave us in terms of our sympathy or public sympathy in general for you know, folks fleeing gangs and criminal enterprises in Haiti and Central America, people who can't make a living anymore because climate change is um, you know, rendering their land less productive. What happens with public sympathy for them? So I think public sympathy is uh, it's on the move. I think after four years of the Trump administration, uh, there's a large swath of the American public from uh, left to a moderates and independents to conservatives who were really questioning uh, the Trump administration's approach to immigrants and refugees. And I think it became clear, very clear over the course of um, the the uh, Haitian crisis at just after the Afghanistan evacuation last year, where, you know, for a lot of the communities that we work with that are conservative and moderate, they saw the way that the Biden administration, much less the immigration system, was treating Haitian refugee, Haitian migrants, excuse me. Um, and people just, you know, they didn't like it and they wanted something different. Uh, and I think that Again, Congress and the, the administration have a real opportunity to say, okay, this is the moment where we need to look at the, the way we are treating immigrants and refugees and really uh, you know, bring these systems into the, the 21st century. Right. But back to Europe for a second and that the Syrian refugee crisis, which you, know, you devote a chapter of your book to, how did the reaction of Europe in particular um, to that influx impact politics and the rhetoric around immigration globally? And let us also not forget that we had 31 governors in this country who wanted to ban the resettlement of refugees in their states. 
Well, I, for as I was researching the book, I really realized you know, what a seminal moment uh, the Syrian refugee crisis was, not just for the millions of, of Syrians who had to flee their homes because of a terrible civil war uh, and who remained displaced, um, but also for the way that the world sees refugees. And in this particular case, what happened is that Viktor Orban, who is the prime minister of Hungary, and you know, Hungary is the external border of the European Union uh, to the east, if you will, uh, he saw that you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of Syrians were reaching the Hungarian border, uh, in essence, to be able to enter the European Union and get to uh, Germany and other places uh, on, on, in Western Europe. Uh, Angela Merkel, who was at that point the, uh, was leading Germany, she says in late August uh, that Germany will welcome one million Syrian refugees. Days after that, that announcement by Merkel, uh, Orban writes in a German newspaper that, in essence, uh, those who are coming from Syria are not Christian. And what uh, Orban believed is that it was his job to keep European Christian. And what he did as a result is that he weaponized the migration of Syrian refugees to, number one, harden the Hungarian border so that people could not cross. Number two, he then moved European Union politics and policies further and further to the right so that over the course of months to a year, the European Union externalized their border, in essence, kind of leveraged Turkey and then Libya to stop migrants from ever even reaching the European Union. Mm -hmm. And third, uh, Orban's rhetoric actually played a significant role in uh, helping with the passage of Brexit as Nigel Farage in uh, the UK, in essence, mimicked a lot of his language. Here in the US, Donald Trump as candidate and then as president, uh, um, really repeated the, the blueprint that Orban put uh, on, onto the world where he weaponized Syrian, refugee, uh, Syrian refugees over the course of the campaign. And then as president, uh, really uh, continuously over and over again, uh, um, framed migration from Central America as a threat uh, to Americans, whether it's a physical threat, a security threat, or even a, an identity threat. Um, so in many ways, you know, the, that what Orban did in 2015 um, has really uh, shifted the way that the world sees refugees and immigrants. Right. That's so fortunate. But one of the hallmarks of your work at the forum has been, you know, reaching across the aisle, engaging people across the political spectrum, um, you know, evangelical Christians, sheriffs, um, conservative farmers. Um, how do you think that works toward creating consensus and helping change the narrative? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the evangelical women who visited Oaxaca, who you featured in your book, and maybe about the dairymen in Idaho? Sure. So, you know, as Orban and then even Trump were trying to, and in many ways have successfully uh, weaponized migration, we saw over and over again that the base of voters that they were aiming for were individuals who would self-identify as evangelical, in most cases as white evangelical. So over the last, I would say, 10 years, uh, my colleagues and I at the National Immigration Forum have really spent a lot of time trying to understand uh, how evangelicals, whether pastors or individual congregants, are seeing immigrants and immigration, uh, what their fears are, but then also what their aspirations are. So over the course of um, uh, 2017 and really into, uh, you know, from since 2017, we've started to build out a 
community of evangelical women. And we've done this in partnership with an organization out of Baltimore called World Relief that is faith-based and one of the world's leading uh, refugee resettlement organizations. And this is what we realized is that um, you know, women were very, they were skeptical um, of the way that the Trump administration was treating immigrants, um, but they didn't have another way to think about it. Um, so what we did over time is that working with leadership within the evangelical community, we created, in essence, communities within the evangelical, uh, within evangelical America so that women could sit together, learn more about the issue from a policy perspective, reflect on what the Bible says about welcoming the stranger, and then also organize trips to places like Oaxaca. So what you mentioned, Miriam, was really important because in that trip to Oaxaca, Bree Stentrud, who now runs the program for us, she sat with migrant mothers who were fleeing Central America, making their way through Mexico, trying to seek, find protection in the United States. And it, it just dawned on her um, of everything that she was missing in terms of the pain and the suffering that these women and their children were going through. And it's just been a really remarkable journey that these that women have taken because it takes a lot of personal courage to ask these questions of themselves, much less the community around them. Um, and I got to say, as an organization, as an individual, you know, I've learned so much from them as well in terms of how people are thinking about these issues and, and what people need to, to understand them and see them in a different way. Mm -hmm. And what about the Idaho dairymen? Oh, yes, the Idaho dairymen. I, I also have gotten to know more about the, the dairy operations than I would ever imagine. Um, well, the Idaho story actually ties back to the Syrian story. So in 2015, when uh, Trump said in December that he was going to halt uh, uh, Muslim immigration to the United States, you know, then uh, uh, the governor of, of Idaho, he's one of those governors who signed that letter saying that no Syrian refugees would be allowed in the state. Well, it went even far beyond that in Idaho. You know, you had Breitbart News and Infowars and other far-right publications descend on Twin Falls uh, to take advantage of a tragic incident that occurred between youth and, and Twin Falls. And these publications, you know, started spreading rumors locally and then nationally that Syrian refugees were responsible for this incident. Um, and what happens is that Twin Falls, city of about 50,000 people, a very conservative community in Southern Idaho, um, but that a community that is dependent on, you know, political or economically on the dairy, the dairy industry. Um, in the book, I tell the story about Zeze Rosema, who is the uh, coordinator of the refugee program in Twin Falls. Um, so after the election of Trump, he works with the Idaho dairymen and the Idaho dairymen are really interesting crew because for many of them, their family histories go back to leaving uh, Denmark after World War II. Um, and they understand what it means to be pushed off your land because of war and conflict. So to make a long story short, what happens is that conservative white dairymen partner with immigrants and refugees in Twin Falls to change the narrative, to change the way the community sees immigrants and refugees. Um, and now Twin Falls, I mean, it was always a special place, but now it's even more special because of the way these communities are working together. I mean, so does this give you reason to believe that it's possible to have a civil conversation around immigration? I, I really do. I think that, and, and it's it's not because, you know, we are, because all of, all Americans believe that we're a nation of immigrants, right? Um, that's, that's a very kind of romantic notion, even though it's the subtitle of my book. <laughs> it's a romantic notion. It's not, I don't think many people kind of identify 
the history of the country that way. I think people are seeing that their community is a community of immigrants. Uh, and that leads to a lot of fears, a lot of assumptions. Um, and what we found is that if you can create the right spaces, if you can create the right opportunities for people to learn from each other uh, in a ways that they, they, they're learning from people that they trust, then the reconciliation of a nation of immigrants begins with the reconciliation of communities. Uh, and yes, I, I certainly feel it's, it's possible. You know, we've seen just far too many examples of people not just changing the way they think about immigration, but really going on to be powerful and, and, and passionate advocates for reforms. Well, we do have a question from the audience that you have perhaps um, answered in part, at least, like, how do you get beyond the hatred and the fear that so many Republicans spout off about immigrants? Well, I think number one is, um, you know, we have to, it's not about trying to understand the fears that are coming from, you know, certain Republicans, um, you know, they have a strategy and they, you know, they are saying things that they know resonate locally. So then the question is really, okay, how do you under, how do we understand how those messages are resonating and, and kind of becoming a part of, of Americans' lives? Uh, and we believe that, you know, really comes down to the networks that we all have of friends and families, uh, in essence, kind of our in-groups. And how, because we're not going to, you know, we're not going to defeat what Fox News and Tucker Carlson put out there, you know, but, you know, you can't ignore it either. So we've come to believe really strongly that, you know, working through faith communities, local law enforcement officials, local business leaders, you can create these conversations that starts to push back on the, the, the hate and the fear that comes from uh, Tucker Carlson and others on the far right um, and, and begin a way to, 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 you know, shift that conversation. But it also means that oftentimes at the beginning of that conversation can be really awkward and really, quite frankly, really painful. Um, because it's, it is painful to see people scared. And when people are scared, uh, they, they're in, they can often be angry. Right. Do you think that there are any countries in this, in our world where there are productive conversations happening around immigration? Um, and if so, why? Yeah, I think Canada has probably been doing the most interesting work uh, in this. And, you know, for example, um, in Canada for a long time, they've had a individual refugee sponsorship program, which means that, you know, in the US up till probably about six to 12 months ago, the only way refugees could, in essence, kind of begin the resettlement progress process here in the United States is that they would go through one of the nine resettlement agencies and then their networks of local organizations. They all do great work, right? Mm -hmm. um, but in Canada, in addition to that, they also have an opportunity for individuals or families to sponsor the resettlement of refugees. And the numbers resettled are not significant, but the stories that come from those individual families stepping forward and saying, this is what I want to do as an individual are very powerful. And those experiences kind of get beyond uh, that, that one family very, very quickly. So I, I think that's a big part of kind of why Canada is, has been able to, 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 you know, be more welcoming in a lot of ways. Um, and there's also, you know, they do, I think that they have a, a they have a visa program that actually fluctuates with the economic need of the country, whereas our visa and our legal visas and our legal immigration system is very static and, uh, as we all know, kind of nearly impossible to change in many ways. Um, so I think Canada has just has come to the terms with the idea that migration is a dynamic process. So they have established a system 
that tries to match that dynamism. Right, and I think the perception among the public that these immigrants were selected or that they came, you know, they had the points necessary might influence the, you know, I mean, that, that influences a per, their perception of, of these people. Oh, we need these people rather than, you know, they just came here. Um, but, but I mean, Canada's also held on to a very strong family immigration system as well. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, to be a part of a family is also, it, it's worth points. So um, uh-huh. I, I think Canada, uh-huh. you know, Canada has figured out the, the right formula here. Right. Um, one of your chapters is about fear. I think it's entitled Fear. And I have to say that in my reporting in the field through the years, I feel like there's this very deep-seated fear among many Americans of the demographic changes, like the reality that this country is not as Caucasian as it once was. People don't like look, you know, especially, I mean, maybe you shouldn't select that point out, but, you know, older people are people who I encounter in, you know, Arizona who are retired and, you know, they don't like hearing Spanish when they walk into Burger King, they tell me, or they, they, they wonder whether the character of the country and the value of the country could be changing because, you know, they, 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 they could be losing the majority in the country. And I think that those people are fairly well informed about the fact that we are moving toward becoming a, a minority majority country, right? Um, but I, I feel like, yeah, I mean, American, many Americans don't want to see this country continuously evolve, which is maybe one of the beauties of this country, right? Um, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, so in 2018, um, we conducted us about two dozen what we called living room conversations, and we partnered with an organization called More in Common. And together we designed a, a discussion, if you will, that really tried to understand um, how people identified themselves, how they saw their identity kind of in a broader community. And then over the course of the two hour conversation, really tried to understand kind of what the fears were or concerns that people had uh, when it came uh, to immigration. So the question, the fears that would consistently come up really revolved around culture, security, and the economy. Uh, And the cultural question would be, in essence, kind of to boil down what you just said, Miriam, is, you know, are immigrants and refugees, are they integrating into society or are they isolating? Uh, From a security perspective, are immigrants and refugees, are they threats or protectors? And then economically, are immigrants and refugees, are they givers or takers? So what we have found is that if we can acknowledge those fears and then create ways so that they're not just answered, but that people are also invited into uh, opportunities to think and act differently on when it comes to immigration, um, then you start to move the needle. But I think in too often in our politics, we don't acknowledge those fears. We just dismiss them outright and we just kind of keep moving. And I think that once people feel like their fears or their concerns are being dismissed or, or diminished, then it's really hard to have a conversation and say, okay, how do we actually find a consensus? Um, there's one story that I told of um, in the book about a, a woman that we met, met with and met in South, South, uh, Southern California, excuse me, uh, where she told us that you know, she could not talk about something political like immigration uh, with, her, with her brother or father because they would just, it would just become uh, impossible so quickly. And what she said is that you know, she felt like their fear came from a fear of losing their identity. Uh, and 
what I saw in her eyes uh, as she was speaking, as I was watching the tape of that, that conversation, mm-hmm. is that she was afraid of losing her family because she was standing up for immigrants and immigration. And I think as advocates, we often have to realize that, again, it takes a lot of courage for somebody to think differently about such a tough issue. Uh, um, and particularly when their family or their community or their in-group is very, very kind of set in, in, in their ways. Right. I mean, one, um, someone in the audience is asking, how do we set up reconciliation forums in our communities? I think it really comes down to, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's oftentimes we, we kind of think about this as, okay, this is going to be really hard, right? And you got to think about every single angle. Sometimes it's as simple as, you know, finding the pastor or the, the, the rabbi or the imam or the, you know, the, 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 the cultural leader in a community to say, okay, you know, can you, can we work together to pull together, you know, four breakfasts over the course of four months, you know, with these 10 people. Um, and, you know, from those conversations, you know, there are going to be some really, really interesting and helpful and powerful and sometimes really uh, difficult threads to pull. Um, but, you know, you can do, we can do all do these things affiliated with organizations, um, or we can just kind of take it upon ourselves and say, okay, you know, let, let's get the, let's get the right five people in a room and, and start a conversation. Right. I mean, one thing that has surprised me also, as I've reported across the country, is how the economic argument doesn't seem to convince as many people like who you think, these practical-minded Americans, you know, who have such a strong work ethic. I mean, we know that, you know, our population is aging. We need to replenish our workforce if we want our economy to continue to thrive. Um, you know, we need this young immigrant blood to, you know, um, work and pay into the social security system that will support all these baby boomers who are retiring. And we need a lot of immigrants to tend to these baby boomers who are going to live until they're 100. But yet that argument doesn't seem to really, you know, um, convince folks. I think the problem with that argument is that we often make it at the national level. And, you know, to a, a normal person, I mean, I am not a normal person. I, I read way too much news. I spend, right, you know, right. right? right. Um, you know, talking about GDP is so far removed from anybody's like day-to-day life. They're just worried about, okay, how do I make sure that I can make enough money to pay my bills and my kids will live a better life than me? That is their bottom line interest. And so I, I think that we have to figure out a way that we're talking about economic contributions of immigrants at a much more localized level. So going back to that, that example of Idaho, Idaho has had a, an unemployment rate of roughly 3% to less than 5% um, over the last 10, 15 years, with the exception of you know the, the about six to 12 months around COVID-19. Um, so you know, if you wanted to, if you want to find a job in Twin Falls, Idaho, you can find a job. So the, the economic uh, uh, value of immigrants is crystal clear. It comes back to what you're saying earlier is kind of that cultural fear and that fear of kind of losing identity. Um, and that's why I think like the example of Idaho and so many other places across the country where it is that native born person who, you know, looks and feels like an Idahoan of generations past to say, you know what, we can do this differently. We can, we can welcome this community. And I don't say that in a way to diminish the leadership of 
the immigrant or the refugee community anywhere. I mean, in Idaho, so they've played such a large role in kind of the revitalization and shifting the narrative. Um, but we have to figure out a way to kind of create new partnerships and, and have new conversations so that we're actually able to engage a much, a much bigger sense of, of we in the country. And how do we do that against the backdrop of, you know, Fox News and Infowars and this highly segmented media? Because we know so many people, you know, consume media that reinforces their views of the world. So, yeah, I guess it goes back to we got to get these people in reconciliation forums at the local level because um, otherwise, you know, we're coming up against, you know, what they watch on TV day in and day out. So I think that there is a really, uh, uh, there's a lively debate that's happening in conservative America, um, where you have certainly one segment that uh, would like to see larger, taller, more uh, sinister walls at our borders. Uh -huh. Yes, there is that segment of the American public. Uh -huh. um, and we're not going to change their mind, right? That's, I'm, I'm not saying we're, we need to, we should be spending time there. But there's, I think, an equally large, if not a larger segment of the public that looks at what the far right is saying and says, I'm not with, you know, that's not me. Even if I'm quote conservative or Republican, right. they look at what the left is saying and that's, and they'll say, that's not me because it's not my political identity. Right. So the question is, um, how do you have those conversations with the folks who are, are, again, have these fears, but don't feel like they have any place to go. Um, and, you know, we think that reaching them through, for example, uh, um, faith-based publications, through you know innovative digital campaigns, um, because you know and obviously you know, in a highly fragmented media media system, it's you know it's hard to beat a Fox News. But on the other hand, a highly fragmented media system also means that with the right strategy and the right resources, you can reach really really specific slices of voters too. Right, exactly. Huh. Um, you know. In, in, in your book, you, you take us to different places. You go to Nogales, you know, you go to Honduras. Um, I, what I most enjoy about my work and I'm, is that I can brag that I'm not in Washington, that I really do spend my time in communities across the country. And I really feel like I have a, you know, my finger on the pulse of how Americans feel and how immigrants are, 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 are doing. So I guess I want to take a moment to ask you a little bit about your, you know, your decision to write this book, the power of storytelling. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about like your trip to Honduras and meeting yeah. Carlos and yeah. anything else you'd like to share. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in the immigration space, um, you know, it's a really complicated issue and it's a really controversial issue. And we often talk about immigration uh, and kind of changing the immigration system through a policy framework, uh, which again is really complicated, right? Uh, and I mean, I think there's some amazing books that are out there from the perspective of the Latino community, the Latino community, the Asian community, kind of the impact of community. And there's some really courageous and brilliant writers out there doing that work. Um, and what I tried to, what I wanted to do is to take a step back um, and try to combine the stories that were, you know, the realities that were being lived, whether it's in a Twin Falls or in a Honduras or in Europe, and connect those to the politics and the policies um, that, in so many ways, kind of make this debate not just complicated but really, really ugly. And uh, that that trip to Honduras was actually, uh, in many ways, 
was kind of the opportunity for me to say, okay, there's something here. And um, it was in, I think the fall of 2019, it was a trip to uh, Tegucigalpa. And earlier that year, I'd gone to San Pedro Sula. And when I was in uh, Tegucigalpa, uh, a friend of mine took me to La Union, which is a, uh, a town in the Coffee Highlands uh, in the, I think the Lempiera uh, district of the country. It's probably about a two or three hour drive out of Tegucigalpa, um, up these amazing, you know, dirt roads. And, and you've been on these roads where it's just the landscape is gorgeous, but the poverty is so extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, and one morning we went up to probably about four or 5,000 feet elevation. And, you know, at a certain point, the trees give way to, to coffee plants. And um, we drive up to a small uh, kind of clearing on a hillside. And um, there's a small cinder block house, probably two small rooms and a small kitchen. And we sit down with Carlos. And Carlos, a few weeks earlier, had actually come back from uh, the U.S.-Mexico border. And he tells us this amazing story of, you know, his crops were dying because of coffee rust, because of the drought. Um, and he couldn't afford to plant new, new, a new crop because of just of the, of the prices of coffee, the prices of coffee really plummeting over time. And then his oldest daughter gets sick and he's, he says, okay, how am I going to pay for her healthcare? Uh, so he decides he's going to try to make it to the United States. And his father tells him, he shared with us that his father told him, don't go because you could very well come back with nothing. Um, so he ends up mortgaging his house, uh, selling his car, and paying a coyote that he had met in town uh, to get him and his daughter uh, to the U.S.-Mexico border. And he shares this, this really difficult story of getting to the border. And um, he gets there. He doesn't ask. He doesn't tell you know, the U.S. government that he's fleeing persecution or fleeing violence. He tells them that you know, he's, he's looking for a job. Um, and I remember, actually, his wife intervened at this point in the conversation. And she says in Spanish uh, that was translated for me, she says, we didn't lie. We told the truth and we're being punished for telling the truth. And, um, you know, when we were sitting with him those three weeks after him getting back, he was worried that they would have to leave their house because he had mortgaged it um, in order to pay the coyote. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, what he told me is that if the Honduran government had supported the community, the community would not leave. And if the U.S. had a functioning immigration system, he would have been more than happy to pay, you know, $10,000 to the US government or whatever the number was that he said, versus paying $10,000 to a coyote. Um, So in that one story, it just became very clear that, you know, Carlos was the kind of person that could make the United States better, his daughter could make the United States better. But um, we were more more intent on keeping people out and treating people cruelly over the course of the Trump administration. And we've got to fix that that process now. Right, because I mean, I was going to ask you um, something else. Of course, I'm not, you know, polling people, but I seem to meet many immigrants who would be happy to come here for a certain period of time and go home. And we don't really have an immigration system right now that allows for that, at least not in the numbers of workers we need. Um, You know, somebody like Carlos would obviously, you know, uh, avail of that. And, right. you know, we've had, yeah, we've had some questions about, you know, how do we convince Congress to reform our broken immigration system? So let me talk about the circular migration and we'll talk about Congress. So, you know, really, I would say before 9-11 and really the hardening of the U.S.-Mexico border, um, there was a high level of circular migration, meaning that, you know, somebody could live in, you know, in Oaxaca, Mexico, come to the U.S., 
work for eight months, you know, construction, agriculture, otherwise, and then return. And there was a circular sense of it. And uh, um, frankly, it worked, right? Um, and then once the border got so hardened and it became impossible or nearly impossible for, for this circular type of migration to continue. So now there's, you know, there's a large, the majority of folks who are here undocumented have been undocumented here in the United States for well over a decade. Um, and in essence, you know, they would love to be able to go home and visit their parents or grandparents or families, but they can't. Um, so I think, you know, creating that sort of a system, I think would ease a lot of pressure at the border, um, would quite frankly, undermine an entire line of business that the cartels have built over the years. Exactly. Uh, I mean, they're, I mean, look, we, we in essence have outsourced the entire, nearly the entirety of our immigration system to the cartels. Absolutely. I mean, they are, they're making, uh, um, you know, billions of dollars just on, on the movement of people. Um, so then the question that, that we got in the chat was, okay, how do you pressure Congress? I think Congress, and this really comes down to you know, a handful of Republicans, Republican senators um, these days of needing to hear from their constituents about this, the, the importance of immigrants and immigration. And I think, you know, between Ukraine, Afghanistan, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, what we're seeing in Central America, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, at some point, rational Republicans are going to have to break from the far right ring of their party and say, okay, let's, let's start to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. right. Someone's asking, um, you know, about U.S. partnership or work with other countries like Mexico, um, you know, to address immigration and immigration policy. Do you think that there are opportunities? What are the challenges in that? So um, a lot of that work right now is, um, you know, trying to address the root causes of migration. And, you know, when in the chapters that I wrote about Honduras, I actually found myself investigating a lot of the efforts by the Obama administration to root out corruption in Honduras. And in one particular example was an effort in 2016 to really root corruption out of the national police in Honduras. Um, over the course of about a year, uh, uh, faith organizations and as well as civic leaders came together to run what they called a purge process, where they identified thousands of members of the Honduran National Police from the top of the hierarchy to rank and file um, that were fired from their jobs because of corruption. And it was pretty amazing because as you saw that purge taking place, you also saw the homicide rate in the country drop. That is a real life, that's a real quality of life indicator when you don't feel like you're going to be killed by the police, right? It gives you a lot more confidence to stay in the country. Um, so there's those kinds of measures, you know, there have been ongoing, you know, under the Biden administration, there's been an infusion of private sector capital in Central mm -hmm. America. Um, so it's really a balance of trying to address root causes, but then there's also an element of the Trump administration did this and the Biden administration is doing this as well, so that Mexico in particular has a greater security at their southern border. And the problem with that is that, you know, really Mexico has no trained uh, uh, border patrol. So what they do then is deploy, in essence, their military, their police that just don't have the training or the wherewithal to be able to manage migration in a, in a humane way. Right. So, I mean, in the short term, it, 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 it doesn't look very promising at the border, right? I mean, if we lift Title 42, right, the public health um, measure um, that really should be going away if COVID is subsiding, we're obviously going to have 
many people at the border, huge volumes. And where does that leave us in this discussion? And where does that leave the Biden administration, which has obviously, you know, been berated by the right over this issue and uses it, right, as a kind of, you know, uh, an excuse not to pass immigration reform, right? The border, you know, needs to be fixed before we do anything for dreamers or, you know, it's, it's, it's really disconcerting. Well, I think that there, uh, we really need to understand what the problem is. The problem is not the migrant leaving Central America. The problem is really the cartel that has monetized that journey. Because what they are saying to the migrant in Central America is that you pay me $10,000, I will get you in. Um, and you can either take that put, you, you can either, you know, so, so much of our, our policy has really been designed to, to stop that migrant from being able to do that. The cartel is, you know, the cartels are always going to get around that system one way or another. So let's create another system for the migrant to say, you know what, I don't have to pay that cartel $10,000. I can actually apply for and pay for a visa to the United States because the United States has an economic and a social need for immigrants. Um, so I think we have to work really hard to, to reframe the public's understanding of what the problem is. You know, earlier today, in fact, uh, the Biden administration uh, released a proposed new role, r- rule, excuse me, on asylum, really kind of processing at the border. And what they're starting to put in place, and there's still one more comment period, but will be opportunities for people to pursue their asylum claims in a faster and a quicker fashion. And in essence, you know, kind of making a credible fear interview and asylum interview, empowering other parts of US citizenship and immigration services to adjudicate these cases. On its face, these are really important and really good changes. There's, you know, there are a lot of questions in terms of making sure that people have access to due process. Um, I mean, because look, I'm not saying that every single person who applies for asylum should be able to receive asylum, but they should be able to go through a process. And if we actually had a functioning legal immigration system, our asylum system would not be overwhelmed like this. Because right now, the reason a lot of people apply for asylum is that that is their only legal way to enter the country. Um, And I think we have to, and that's what the cartels are selling. Um, so let's create a system that the cartels don't have control over um, and that people can can apply for in a, in a fair and equitable way. Yeah, that makes that that makes a, a, a perfect sense. Um, and Unfortunately, it's the, not a sensible world. <laughs> right. But, you know, going back to Central America for a second in your travels there, I mean, what 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 surprised you in your mm-hmm. travels there? You know, what was most instructive to you? You know, um, I think when you go to a place like Central America, um, especially in the immigration space, you know, I w- my first trip there, I kind of was, I assumed that people were fleeing violence full stop, right? And I'm not, and let me be clear, I mean, violence and the impunity with which gangs and cartels operate in Honduras is terrifying. Mm-hmm. No doubt about that. But you don't have to, you just peel back a little bit of the onion and you realize that that impunity is, is possible because of corruption um, throughout the government at so many levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, you know, you know, climate change has really, you know, shifted the way that, you know, coffee farmers are able to, to eke out a living. Um, so my point here is that the situation in Honduras is more complicated than what we realize. But on top, in spite of that complication, that complexity, this is a nation of incredibly proud people who don't want to leave, who, you know, and I remember um, my first trip there in San Pedro Sula, 
we ended up driving through a, a bordo, which in essence is a, is a slum in Honduras. And, you know, on one side behind the, the kind of ramshackle homes was a canal that was just, that, you know, it was clear that would flood every time it rained. And, you know, a lot of those homes would probably be, have to be rebuilt after that flood. And I remember we were getting out of the, our bus and I looked down the road and there's an elderly woman sweeping the front of her house, just so, and it's just a dust road, but sweeping that, that front porch with the pride of anybody else around the world. You know, we could be in suburban Los Angeles and you'd see the same picture of anybody kind of sweeping their front porch, that same level of pride. Um, and, you know, in that one kind of moment and kind of, I saw that on that first day, I was like, okay, this is not going to be what I expected. Um, and just the, the level of pride that people have in their communities. And, you know, again, they don't want to leave. Um, but there are forces that are, are leading to this perfect, perfectly natural and rational decision. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I felt like for much of, much of your book, you were sort of pessimistic, but you did end in a more positive, you know, on a more positive note, like what makes you optimistic now? Mm. Um, yeah. When I, when I go back and read it, I was like, Whoa, that's a pretty dark first half of that book. <laughs> I think what, what makes me optimistic, um, you know, so in another town that I wrote about is uh, storm Lake, Iowa, it's about 13, 14,000 people in Northwestern Iowa. And one of the people that I met there is Maria Ramos, uh, who in the, I think the eighties, came to the United States from a small village outside of Puerto Vallarta. And she tells me the story of crossing the border at night with her family. And she said that her parents told them that they were gonna take them someplace beautiful. And they were dressed for someplace beautiful, kind of like uh, ready to spend the day in the sun. So that means that they were in shorts and t-shirts walking through a cold desert night. She told me about kind of the dangerous and the cold journey. Uh, and kind of getting to California, being with her brothers. Uh, eventually, the family makes their way to Storm Lake to be a part of kind of, in essence, the meatpacking community in Storm Lake. And I find hope in her journey because Maria Ramos is now a United States citizen, is now a member of the city council of Storm Lake, Iowa, and is ensuring that this small town is, is, is helping every single person, U.S. citizen, documented, undocumented, native-born, from Mexico, from you know, Laos uh, from Vietnam to reach their fullest potential. And I think that, you know, her journey and what she has, along with others in Storm Lake have created is, you know, what gives me hope. Right, exactly. And um, we have a question here um, as we start to wind down from somebody and it's directed to both of us. And that is, is there something in your own personal history that has motivated you to do this kind of work? You go first. I've done all the talking. <laughs> uh, um, for me, I think in part it's that I grew up in a developing country. I actually grew up in Brazil. I'm, I'm Brazilian American. And um, my father was a statistician. And all my life, um, when I complained like that I wanted to go, I remember there was a time, I mean, I did go to an international school in Rio de Janeiro where there were many wealthy um, 
um, students, um, they were children of, you know, Exxon Mobil executives or of, you know, very wealthy Brazilians, bankers. And, you know, they went to Disney World every year. They, you know, they were going flying to Paris for four days. And, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, moaned about the fact that we were always traveling within Brazil, which I now so appreciate because I know Brazil so well, thanks to these family trips. But my father also always threw out data to me about, well, you don't know how many Brazilians make less than three minimum salaries a month. Or, you know, I got my first watch when I was 25. And, um, and so I think there was that sort of growing up very aware of the privilege that I had. Um, and the other thing is that um, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I thankfully became a foreign correspondent and I spent a lot of time in the developing world. I also spent a time in, in more you know, developed cities. I mean, I spent time in Hong Kong, but I really found my, my place when I was reporting on people who were, as if for lack of a better word, poor, um, disadvantaged, who had not had opportunities like I'd had. And that might've been in Brazil, in India, in Mexico. Um, and I wrote about, you know, uh, gender inequality and I wrote about, you know, um, healthcare inequities and the like. So um, I then had the opportunity to start writing about immigration when, you know, I was invited back to the United States at the time by the Wall Street Journal. And it's been more than 15 years and I continue to do this work. and. You know, um, though we haven't made progress on comprehensive immigration reform, I'm always learning and I'm so grateful for all the people I meet. And I am not better than any person I ever write about in the immigrant space. I am constantly humbled by the work ethic of the immigrants I meet, the dignity that they have, like Ali was talking about, the women, the, the woman sweeping her shack outdoors, indoors, and, and others. So that's, that's where I came from to this. Um, you know, so I, I mean, first of all, I, like, I, I do what I do because I'm able to do what I do because of my parents. I mean, for me, for my parents, I mean, my parents were the ones who crossed borders to ensure that, you know, my sisters and I can uh, lead the lives that we, we lead. Uh, they were both, you know, born and raised in, uh, in India and in Pakistan. So, um, you know, so much of everything that I do is because of, you know, their decision to cross borders. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people ask me, okay, how do you sit and talk and kind of create ways to work with uh, conservative and moderate Americans? Um, because, you know, in this day and age, it's kind of like a, a, it's a little bit of an outlier, right? If people kind of look at us at the National Immigration Forum, like we're a little bit lunatic. Um, but I always go back to a particular story, actually back in 2010, where in Utah, um, five state workers had taken it upon themselves to kind of send the attorney general and uh, the governor, this list of thousands of people that they claimed were undocumented immigrants using public services in Utah. And uh, it turned out that these were merely people with Latino surnames. Uh, uh, so it turns into this big story. And we ended up doing a press con a telephonic press conference like about a week after the story broke. And uh, Mark Shirtleff, who was the attorney general of Utah at the time, was on the call. And I had never talked to Mark before. The most that I knew about him was about 10 minutes before the, the press conference where I noticed that he had 
tweeted from a, a death penalty execution uh, and he tweeted in favor of the death penalty. So I just knew he was a, you know, he was wow. conservative. And, um, and I'm moderating the, the press conference and I think it was a reporter from CNN who asks uh, the Attorney General Shirtleff, so, you know, what are you going to do? And um, he had been like really kind of solid on kind of the, you know, talking about the need for reform and how this was wrong. And he said, you know, this was not a blacklist that these individuals circulated. This was a hit list. And I'm going to do everything in my power as attorney general to you know, make sure that they, they, they're held accountable. Um, and I'm on the phone thinking that, okay, if, you know, somebody who is conservative through and through religiously, politically, um, can feel this strongly about this injustice that was inflicted upon this community, there have to be more people like him. Um, and that's what we've proven at the National Immigration Forum is that um, across the country, there are people who see themselves as Republicans, see themselves as independents, see themselves as conservatives who are saying, you know what, I want to think about and act on immigration in a way that is different from the far right wing of my party, or even the far right wing of kind of my community. And I think that it's a, it's a really, really exciting um, opportunity to be a part of a small part of this effort to try to create those spaces. Well, it's about time for us to uh, close. Uh, thank you so much, Ali, for, for doing this. It's been uh, a pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you to everyone in our audience for tuning in. You'll be able to find a summary of our talk at zocalopublicsquare.org by tomorrow plus interviews with both of us and subscribe to Zocalo's newsletter, podcasts, social media, they're great. Ali's book again is Crossing Borders and it'll be out next week. So check it out. And that's it for today. Thank you and bye-bye. Uh, hey, thank you so, so much. <laughs>